Our scripture reading today is Hebrews 7, verses 1 to 25. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, and to Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to Abraham the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, through these, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man does not have his descent from them receive tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men. But in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise from the order of Melchizedek, rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, as Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but the, by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such with an, without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Dear Lord, thank you for the gift of preaching 
and the privilege of worshiping together on a regularly recurring Sabbath. Please give us the desire to listen closely, to learn well, and to live boldly the truth which Micah will speak to us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Thanks, Brian. Good morning, Christ Church. Uh, as always, it's an honor to be with you and to open God's Word together. Uh, have you ever had the feeling like you were just being mildly hazed? Uh, since I've been here, the passages I've been assigned to preach are the total slaughtering of the Amalekites, Saul and the Witch of Endor, spiritual warfare, angels, and now Melchizedek. No, but in all seriousness, uh, God's Word is good, and it always gives us exactly what we need. So I'm excited to walk through this passage together this morning. Uh, so just to catch us up to where we are, we've been going through the book of Hebrews, which is a written-down sermon preached to a congregation of weak and weary Christians who are considering going back to the comforts of the tactile rituals of Judaism. The preacher is saying, why go back when you have something infinitely better in the person and work of Jesus? And then he tells us how Jesus is better. He's the final word from God. He's the Son of God. He's better than angels, better than Moses. He leads God's people to a better rest. And in the last few chapters and continuing on, we're getting this multifaceted picture about how Jesus is a better high priest. Last Sunday, we saw how God keeps his promises even when they seem impossible, like he did in the life of Abraham. So the end of chapter 6, last week's passage, ended this way. It said, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So that's where our passage that you just heard read picks up today. It's um, a complicated passage, but it serves an important point in the overall argument of the book of Hebrews. It deals with this question, how is it that Jesus is even qualified to be a priest, let alone the perfect and permanent priest, when he doesn't come from the priestly tribe of Levi? How is Jesus qualified to be a priest? The answer is, believe it or not, Melchizedek. And at the end of our text, we get these really rich promises that Jesus saves us forever and brings us into the presence of God so that we can have closeness and intimacy with the God who created us and that Jesus lives forever to intercede for us. That's the end of our passage, but we need to work through the somewhat complicated logic of the verses that come before to get there. So that's what we're going to do this morning. And as we do, we're going to look at three points. You'll find them in the outline in your bulletin. We're going to look at a Christ-like figure who creates a better priesthood, connecting us to God forever. So first we see a Christ-like figure. 
Who, who was Melchizedek? He's this super mysterious figure that appears once in the book of Genesis for three verses, and then he gets referenced again in Psalm 110 that we saw earlier in our service, and then he shows up in the book of Hebrews as this fairly important cog in this argument about Jesus' priesthood. I this may disappoint some of you. I'm not a huge Lord of the Rings fan, mostly because my own like attention span and ADHD. But uh, but if you are, uh, then I've been told to say that Melchizedek is like the Tom Bombadil of the Bible. So for some of you, it makes a lot of sense. For others of you, you have no idea what I'm talking about. That's okay. The point is, he's this really important, mysterious figure. Uh, so what do we see about him? Look at verse 1 in our passage of Hebrews 7 today. It says that Melchizedek was the king of Salem, the priest of the Most High God, that he met with Abraham returning from the slaughter of kings, and he blessed him. And as a result, Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything to him. So that's referring back to Genesis 14 that we had read earlier in the service. Abraham's nephew Lot gets captured by a bunch of kings. So Abraham goes on this Liam Neeson recon mission to get Lot back along with the people and possessions with him. And after, the king of Sodom approaches Abraham and he tries to make a deal with him. And Abraham has to decide, do I take this deal from an evil king and get rich or do I trust God alone to provide? This is where mysterious Melchizedek comes into the picture. Uh, and, and as we look at him, I want you to listen for the ways that he sounds like Jesus. It says in Genesis 14 that he's the king of Salem, which is future Jerusalem. And he brings Abraham bread and wine. And because he's a priest uh, of the Most High God, he blesses Abraham. In verse 19, this is what he says. Blessed be Abraham by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. So then in response to Melchizedek's generosity and hospitality and priestly blessing, Abraham willingly gives him a tenth or a tithe of everything. And because this mysterious king strengthened and blessed Abraham, he's able to turn down the evil king's offer and trust God alone to provide. And then, we never hear from Melchizedek again in the story. That's it. Those three verses, that's all. Crazy, right? This has led some people to some interesting theories about who Melchizedek was, uh, some thinking that it might even be a Christophany. A Christophany is where Jesus, before the incarnation, shows up in the Old Testament in some human form. Why might someone think that that's what's happening with Melchizedek? Well, look back in our passage in Hebrews 7 at what it says about him. Verse 1 says, he's the king of Jerusalem. He's the priest of the Most High God. Verse 2 says that he's a king of righteousness. That's what the name Melchizedek means. 
And then it says he's the king of peace. That's what Salem or Shalom means. And then verse 3, how strange is this? It says, he is without father or mother or genealogy. He has no beginning of days or end of life. He resembles the Son of God, and he continues as a priest forever. That sounds a lot like Jesus, and that's exactly the point. However, I don't think that this is a Christophany, a pre-incarnate Jesus. I st- instead, what I think is happening is God is giving us a glimmer, a foretaste, a picture in part that points to what Jesus will show us ultimately in full. Why? Uh, because the point isn't that Melchizedek, Melchizedek doesn't actually have a father or a mother or a genealogy. The point is that it's not recorded in the story and it's not the basis of his priesthood. Remember, this is about a contrast between Melchizedek and the priests of Levi. And the priests of Levi, their entire identity, their entire qualification for being priests was because of their genealogy. It was because of what tribe they were a part of. So it's showing that there's a difference here. What about Melchizedek having no end of life and continuing as a priest forever? Well, the point isn't that this guy lives forever and doesn't die. The point is that his death isn't recorded, so there's not a series of another priest coming after him. Uh, I'm going to put my football fandom cards on the table. This might mean some very little to most of you, but uh, I'm a fan of the University of Washington Huskies. Uh, they just won the Pac-12 football championship this year, and the Pac-12 is going away. So the Washington Huskies are the Pac-12 champions forever. Even though they're going to the Big Ten, even though they're still two teams, there's not, previously, every year, there was a different champion. Now, one team forever. That's what it's saying about Melchizedek. And, yeah, congratulations to Michigan. You guys won the championship, but we'll hold the Pac-12 championship. That's what it's saying, that it doesn't record his end of life He has no replacement. It's not a series of perpetually changing over priests as they die. So with Melchizedek, it's a little bit of a glimpse. But with Jesus, as we'll see later, the reason that he's a priest forever is because he actually does live forever. Again, we'll see more about the priesthood uh, in our next point, but I want you to look at verses 4 through 10 and see how the author continues this argument about Melchizedek. Particularly look at verse 7, because it gets to the heart of it. It says this, It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. What's he saying? He's saying that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. This random priest-king figure guy is greater than Abraham, the great patriarch of the faith. Why? Because Melchizedek blessed Abraham, and the blessing always comes from the greater to the lesser. And in return, Abraham gives him a tithe in response. And then he brings in Levi in verse 9, 
who again is this symbolic figurehead of all the ordinary priests. It says this in verse 9, one might even say that Levi himself, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. What's going on here? He's making the point that Melchizedek is better than Abraham, and therefore he's also better than Levi. Because in Hebrew thinking, ancestors like Abraham were always greater than their descendants like Levi. And in a way, the actions of ancestors are done on behalf of or as a proxy for their descendants. So in a way, Levi, because he's a descendant of Abraham, paid tithes to Melchizedek. So back to our argument of Hebrews, why go back to the old Levi system of priests when Levi knows that Melchizedek is better? Why abandon Jesus for something lesser? Before we continue on in the logic of the passage, I think it would be good to take a moment and and just look a little bit more about how this figure Melchizedek points us to Jesus. What are the similarities we see? Well, first, isn't it interesting that there is a priest of the Most High God outside of what's going on with Abraham? It's just a little reminder that God is always doing more than we realize. He's always up to something more. He's working in other cities, other countries, other nations, other peoples, other denominations, other places. God is at work. He is saving a vibrant, multifaceted mosaic of a people for himself. When we get to heaven, we will probably be surprised at who is there. And for that matter, others will probably be surprised when we are there. Because God delights in saving all kinds of sinners and making them sons and daughters. And then we also see Melchizedek showing hospitality. He gives Abraham bread and wine. What does that sound like? It sounds like how Jesus gives us bread and wine. His hospitality is him giving of his very self for us so that we could be saved and continually nourished. Melchizedek nourished Abraham so that he could follow and obey and trust God. Jesus, in giving us himself every time we take the Lord's Supper, amongst many other things, nourishes us so we can love and follow God. It's through Jesus' strength, not something we muster up. He is the one who provides for us. And then it says that Melchizedek is a king of righteousness. Doesn't that sound like Jesus? He is the one who was perfectly righteous, lived a sinless life. Not only that, the word righteousness has to do with justice. Jesus is a just judge who will one day make all things right. Every injustice that happens will be righted by Jesus one day. So we don't need to trust in our own good works and righteousness, but we can lean on Jesus, who is righteous in our place. And Melchizedek is also a king of peace. 
Where do you look for your peace? If you're anything like me, or I would think most people, we look to circumstances for our peace. We look to everything going the way that we had thought it would. We look to control. We look to our orchestration of the events of our life to get our peace. But Melchizedek, who points to Jesus, shows us that peace is not about circumstances. Peace is a person. Peace is found in Jesus. When we went through the book of Ephesians, it said that He Himself is our peace because He's the one who makes us right with God. He's the one who opens forgiveness and reconciliation with others. Everything else can be going crazy around us. And yet in Christ, there's a peace that goes beyond our understanding. The last thing I want to highlight about Melchizedek in this first point is that he is a priest king. There's no one else in Scripture who is both a priest and a king. In David, we get little King David, the great uh, king of the tribe of Judah. We get glimmers of priestly things, but he was not a full priest. He wasn't allowed to build God's temple because of his kingly duties and his shedding of blood in battle. Jesus is both a priest and a king. Tim Keller kind of summarized why that's important this way. He says, a king is someone who represents God to the people. Kings lead. Kings give the law. Kings tell us what God requires of us. A priest is someone who represents the people to God. Someone who is able to be your advocate, to defend you, to make sacrifices on your behalf so that you can be made right with God. In Jesus, we have both. We have someone who perfectly represents God, who is, does not abandon a single dot in the law of God, but perfectly fulfilled it on our behalf. And he's the one who brings us before the throne of God, where we're able to stand without fear of punishment, because he's taken it on our behalf, making himself not only the priest, but the sacrifice for us. So how is this priesthood that Melchizedek is a, is a forerunner of Christ, how is the priesthood that he creates a better priesthood? That's our second point. Let's look at verses 11 through 14. It says this, now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah." And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. Again, we're trying to answer the question, how can Jesus be our perfect and permanent priest when he's from the tribe of Judah and not the tribe of Levi? And the answer here is that the priestly tribe of Levi was never the end game. It was always a temporary system that taught God's people to look for a future, fuller reality. 
God was showing people through the Levitical priesthood that sin is costly. Our sin requires death. And He was showing us the greatness of His grace that we didn't have to suffer on our own the consequences, but He would provide for us continually that sin and death wouldn't be the final word in the lives of God's people. But it was never the sacrifices that actually saved them. It was God's grace pointing forward to the once and for all sacrifice in the person of Jesus. That's why you have scripture passages like these. Hosea 6, 6 says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. David's confession in Psalm 51 says this, you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You would not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. And then a, a few chapters later in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, 4 says this, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The answer isn't in the rituals. Even though the rituals were important, God instituted them, the answer is in the person and work of Jesus. The Hebrew audience of this book is wanting to go back to the rituals because they find comfort in them. When the world around them is chaotic, when they're suffering for their faith, it's easy to go back to them doing something that they can see. But the argument again and again is that even though you can't see Jesus, what He gives you is infinitely better. I think sometimes, just as a little bit of a side note, sometimes we allow rituals to get in the way of God. Rituals are generally good. Like, we're Presbyterians. We have liturgy in our worship. I'm all about structures and rituals and, and all of these things. I think they're really good. I think that to not have them can often distract us or deprive us from some of the richness of what God has given us. On the other hand, sometimes we need to ask ourselves, am I forgetting what these things are actually pointing to? Am I so caught up in reading a certain devotional book or doing things a certain way that I'm just trying to check a box instead of meeting with God? So we need to be constantly evaluating, is this bringing me to a place where I'm actually close to God and able to talk with Him. And sometimes it takes a while of habits before our heart catches up. That's a good thing. But we should be constantly asking ourselves heart-level evaluation questions. Because the point is never to do the thing. The point is to have intimacy with God. So what was, in, uh, what was insufficient and imperfect in the Le Levitical system becomes perfect in Christ. That's what verses 18 and 19 are saying. Look with me. It says this, for on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because it's weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. 
Jesus can actually bring us near to God. We'll say more about that in a minute, but first, the author of Hebrews makes an important point starting in verse 15 about what makes this priesthood better. Look at verses 15 through 17. It says this, This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning, concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So like we've been saying, the, the priests in the tribe of Levi became priests because of a legal requirement, what tribe they were born in. It was all about their ancestry. But Jesus' priesthood, which we get a glimpse of with Melchizedek, is infinitely better. Like I said earlier, Melchizedek continues because his death isn't recorded and he doesn't have a successor. But Jesus continues because he has an indestructible life. What does that mean? It means that Jesus, because of his sinless, perfect life on our behalf, entered into the deepest, darkest valley of sin and death and came out victorious and vindicated when God raised him from the dead. Jesus' resurrection proves his sinless life, that death cannot defeat him. So now he lives forever and he offers us the very same resurrection hope. Though we will all one day physically die unless Jesus returns before then, if our hope is in Jesus, that's not the final word. Resurrection awaits us. New, glorious, resurrection bodies will be given to us. We will live forever. This is the confidence that encourages many Christian martyrs throughout the world. The body they may kill, but one day, God will give me a new body. My life is indestructible. What can man do? Jesus has already won. And then God swears it with an oath in verses 20 through 21. And because God never lies and always keeps his promises, we know that what he's saying is true. God has promised it. Jesus' death has won it. And his resurrection has sealed it and vindicated it. That's why verse 22 says that Jesus is a guarantor. You can take it to the bank a guarantor of a better covenant. The resurrection gives us hope when all seems lost. We have a Jesus who is ultimately victorious. Even Satan's sin and death could not hold him down. That doesn't mean that the hard things in this life aren't hard. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't be people of lament. We should. We should grieve well. We should mourn loss. We should cry when a loved one dies. A funeral, yes, is a celebration, but it's also a time of mourning. But if they're in Christ, it's not the final word. That's the hope that we all have. 
And it's not just life forever that's the promise. It's life forever connected to God. That's our last point, that Melchizedek, that Jesus, modeled after Melchizedek, connects us to God forever. That's what all this talk that we've been having about Melchizedek and priest kings and Levites and loins, all of the randomness of this passage isn't random. It's an argument that leads us to actual intimacy with the God who made us. So maybe you're here this morning and you feel far from God. Maybe you've never, never truly known what it means to know God and have a personal relationship with Him. Maybe you've had times in your life where you felt extremely close to God, but now He seems distant. Maybe your heart feels a little cold and calloused. The drift that we've been talking about in the book of Hebrews speaks to where you feel in your current situation of life. The Jesus that we're about to see in these final verses is for you. So let's look at verses 23 through 25, where we see the promises of God on full display. They say this, The former priests were many in number, because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Like we've said, the Levitical priesthood produced this constant turnover of priests. Because each of the priests, although they were set aside by God, they were still sinful, finite humans who made sacrifices not just for others, but for their own sins. And because they were sinful humans, they all died. It was a good system. God gave us that system, but again, it was never permanent. I, just to drive home a little bit, that point of the uh, constant turnover again, I told you I'm a football fan. I've been thinking about this maybe this year more than others uh, with the coaching carousel of coaches moving and the players entering the transfer, transfer portal. I don't know if you know anything about college football, but it's changed a lot recently. Uh, my friend Brian, who read earlier, is a big Alabama fan. His longtime greatest of all time coach, Nick Saban, retired. And a bunch of players left the team. And that led to my coach going to Alabama and a bunch of players leaving that team. And then we took the coach from Arizona and players left that team. It's like this, so it was this constant cycle of instability and like from year to year, it's not anything close to the same. To use a less trivial football example, a lot of you have a really close relationship with Pastor Andrew, or maybe you did with Pastor Walter, or a different pastor you've had in your life where you're able to share things with them and they pray for you and they know your life and when you share a prayer request, you're not having to start from ground zero, you're sharing it with someone who really knows you and cares about you 
has been a consistent present in your life, presence in your life. Imagine if churches were run such that pastors would be at a church for a year and then move to a different church every year. There'd be no consistency. You'd never be truly known. Not that it's pastors that have to know you. Know you. you should know each other and, and be praying for each other, but there's no consistency in that model. Jesus, through his permanent and perfect priesthood, brings stability, consistency. His priesthood is founded on an oath from God, who is truth himself. It's sealed with his blood. It's, it's uh, guaranteed by the power of his resurrection. There's no awkward starts and stops. There's no missed handoffs. Jesus is a priest forever who saves completely, brings us near to God, and is always interceding for us. That's the promises we have in these final verses. So what does it mean that Jesus saves us completely, or as the text says, to the uttermost? It means all the things you would think about salvation— that Jesus gives you a life with God, that he died in your place, that your sin no longer has the final word because he took it. But it also means something deeper. I mean, maybe the same, but maybe look at it from a different angle. Um, those of us who trust Jesus, who have been in the church, would say all these things. Yes, Jesus saves me. It's not my works. It's Jesus that saves me. He saves all of my, my sin. We know this. And yet, for many of us, we might feel some deep, dark place in our life of sin and shame that even if we wouldn't say it out loud in our hearts, it feels like that place is off limits to Jesus. Yes, maybe he saves sin in general, but not this thing. This thing I still feel is untouched by Jesus' work. But that's not what our passage says. He goes into the deepest, darkest, most shameful places so that he can cover our shame and give us his righteous robe. Even the places that you are terrified to speak out loud to anyone ever, even those places, especially those places, Jesus goes and he forgives them and he covers them and he redeems them so that he can bring us near to God. Brian made the point earlier in the service about holy, holy, holy. It's the only attribute of God that is said three times. Ultimately holy. At some level, we want closeness with God because God made us and he made us for that. Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they find rest in God. And yet, coming into the presence of a holy God as sinful people should terrify us. We see all throughout Scripture when people do it unworthily, they don't make it. It's a terrifying experience because God's holiness cannot endure our sinfulness. 
That's why it's so important that Jesus saves us to the uttermost, so that the thing our hearts long for the most, to be truly known, fully loved, intimate relationship with the God who made us, is not only possible but realized. That's what the priests did. They were the only one that could go into the most holy place. But Jesus' death tore down the curtain. And we can all go constantly, regularly, to a place where our Father who loves us meets with us. Jesus brings us near to God. And lastly, He's always interceding for us. We talk a lot about what Jesus has done, and rightfully so, His finished work. That's why the beginning of Hebrews says that Jesus did all the things and then He sat down on the cross. It is finished. We don't need to add a single thing to Jesus' work on the cross. He did absolutely everything enough. And yet, He's still working. What is Jesus doing right now? He's interceding. He's praying for you. He's at the right hand of God, being that priest who is representing you to God. Do you ever feel discouraged in your prayer life? Like you don't spend enough time with God, or or maybe you do pray, but it doesn't feel like it's getting anywhere. Where your prayer life is lacking, Jesus covers it. He is praying for you constantly, without fail, perfectly, right to God the Father. One author said this about his interceding. His interceding is applying the redemption that he's already accomplished. So that means every day, every moment, Jesus is reminding you and giving you another piece of what he's already done for you. Because we're people who need God every day. Our faith isn't a pray to prayer once and check a box that I'm good for the rest of my life faith. It's a daily, constant reliance on God who we can actually know, who loves us more than we can imagine and wants to bring us before his throne. And isn't that good news? It's good news because you don't have to do it. You don't have to get close to God. You can't do it. In Jesus, God got close to you and He drew you near. If you trust Him, if you believe in Him, you are as close to God as you will ever be. He will never leave you, never forsake you, always be with you. So what does that mean for us? It means comfort. We don't have to fear. We don't have to live every day thinking He loves me, He loves me not. We can know for certain, even when the lies in our head tell us otherwise, even when the doubts are running rampant, what Jesus has done gives us a perfect and permanent forever answer to the question, does God love me? And that confidence gives us boldness. We can pray prayers with people who don't know Jesus 
and ask big things of God. And if they reject us, okay, our identity is fixed in God. We can live our lives with boldness and confidence because Jesus has gone before us. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for giving us a perfect and permanent high priest, one who is perfectly righteous, gives us real and lasting peace, and brings us to the very throne, your very throne room. Assure our hearts and give us confidence. We pray this in Jesus' name, by your Spirit. Amen.